having you to come here rather than me being in Australia right now. Uh, but we have a little thing going on at home I gotta pay attention to. President Biden juggles meetings with world leaders and challenges back home. For Saturday, May 20th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. We'll have the latest from the G7, where Biden has been discussing China and Ukraine while keeping an eye on the debt ceiling talks. And this graduation season, the class of COVID reflects on their unusual high school experience. I would finish assignments as quickly as possible just to be done with it. I think like the, the joy of learning and the social aspect of it was lost. Later, a new documentary series looks at a major megachurch plagued by scandals. What we think we know, this glittery, shiny pop culture veneer and how exciting and incredible it is. But really what's underneath is just so far from that. First the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has joined world leaders in Japan. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Hiroshima, the G7 put out a communique underlining support for Ukraine. President Zelensky arrived in Hiroshima aboard a French plane. He held his first bilateral meeting with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and will join a G7 meeting on security on Sunday. The G7 communique pledged continued support for Ukraine to resist Russia's invasion. It also expressed concerns about China and its policies towards Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and Tibet. But the communique insisted the G7 is not trying to thwart China's development. China's foreign ministry slammed the G7 for meddling in its internal affairs, and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov accused the G7 of double containment of both Russia and China. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Hiroshima, Japan. With the debt ceiling deadline getting closer, there are no talks currently scheduled today between the White House and Hill Republicans. But as NPR's Tamara Keith reports, that could change. With high-stakes negotiations, what can look dire one moment becomes a breakthrough the next. But a source familiar with the process said there are no staff-level talks scheduled for today. The source spoke on condition of anonymity to comment on closed-door negotiations and said the situation remains fluid. President Biden, speaking in Japan, said he has been through many of these negotiations before. It goes in stages. He's taking the long view. I still believe we'll be able to avoid a default and uh, we'll get something decent done. But White House Communications Director Ben LeBolt in a statement implied Republicans aren't negotiating in good faith. Tamara Keith, NPR News. And the Treasury Department says the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills around June 1st. Influential British author Martin Amos has died at his home in Florida of cancer. He was 73. NPR's Chloe Veltman says his novels came to define British life in the late 20th century. Over a career spanning 40 years, Martin Amos became one of the world's leading literary celebrities. He published 15 novels, including Money and London Fields, as well as a memoir and works of non-fiction. Many of his titles were adapted for the screen. In a 2012 interview with NPR's Weekend Edition, Amos shared his discomfort with being famous. I don't see the glory of fame, uh, and I can't imagine why people covet it, but there it is. The son of another renowned British novelist, Kingsley Amos, Martin Amos was born in 1949 in Oxford, England. The movie adaptation of his 2014 novel, The Zone of Interest, premiered only Friday at the Cannes Film Festival to rave reviews. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Members of Writers Guild of America plan to protest outside Boston University's commencement tomorrow. BU's commencement speaker is Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslov. He's been criticized for getting a $250 million pay package while 11,000 writers are on strike. Nicole Beckwith is leading the strike in the Boston area. A commencement speaker is supposed to get up in front of a room full of graduates and shine a light on the opportunities ahead of them. But instead, he is really a dark storm cloud looming over their futures and viability of many of those graduates and the careers they want to pursue. BU President Robert Brown tells the Daily Free Press the university respects the collective bargaining process, but Brown says the invitation to Zaslav is in line with the school's policy for free and open speech. In Fitchburg, authorities are investigating a fatal crash involving a 76-year-old pedestrian who was walking in a crosswalk Friday night. The driver remained at the scene. The ACLU chapters in New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont have settled a lawsuit with U.S. Customs and Border Patrol over the use of checkpoints. Todd Bookman reports the civil liberties group said the stops amount to unconstitutional searches. U.S. Border Patrol has regularly staged checkpoints on roads in northern New England, including on I-93 in the town of Woodstock, 90 miles from the Canadian border. The ACLU's lawsuit alleged that the stops are less about enforcing immigration laws and instead have become a way for Border Patrol to use drug-sniffing dogs on every vehicle passing through. In 2017, more than a dozen citizens were charged with low-level drug possession crimes following a checkpoint. Those cases were eventually thrown out. The two sides have now reached a settlement agreement. Border Patrol agrees to not stage the Woodstock checkpoint until at least 2025. In a statement, the ACLU says it is, quote, ready to intervene if or when the checkpoints resume. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. Taylor Swift continues her weekend performances at Gillette Stadium tonight, especially with the rain. Traffic heading to Foxborough is expected to be heavy. The rain tonight is also expected to be heavy at times with a low around 60 degrees. Sun tomorrow, 70s. 60 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. An eventful meeting of G7 leaders is underway in Hiroshima, Japan this weekend. And it's not eventful just because the leaders of the group of seven countries have welcomed Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Ukraine and Russia are on the agenda, of course, but so too are North Korea, China, and what the group calls economic coercion. And for President Joe Biden, intense meetings are playing out on two continents. There's the G7 summit, but back here in Washington, his aides and Republicans are trying to work out a deal as the debt ceiling deadline gets closer and closer. We're going to unpack all of this with our Asia correspondent, Anthony Kuhn, and White House correspondent, Scott Detrow. Both join me now from Hiroshima. Welcome to you both. Hi, nice to join you. Good to be here. Anthony, let's start with you and with President Zelensky. Can you walk us through his schedule while he's in Hiroshima? Right. So President Zelensky is expected to join a meeting of G7 leaders on security issues on Sunday. And he's also expected to meet bilaterally with leaders, including President Biden. He's already met with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Now, Zelensky is just coming off a tour of the same European countries whose leaders are here, and he already got from them a lot of the military hardware he wants for a counteroffensive against Russia. He has not, though, visited Asia or Japan since Russia invaded. Japan can't give him any weapons, but 
Japan is trying to serve as a bridge between Asia, Europe, and developing nations to rally support for Ukraine. And so far, getting the so-called global south involved in the Ukraine issue has been a really hard sell. I spoke to Rajan Menon with a think tank Defense Priorities, and he argues that Japan may actually be better positioned than the U.S. to ask for help in defending what the U.S. and Japan called the rules-based international order. Let's hear what he said. Many in the South are, if not rolling their eyes, then not terribly persuaded by this because they believe the U.S. itself, when convenient, has broken the rules-based international order. So Japan has an easier sell. Now, another thing Japan can do to help is use the symbolism of the venue, Hiroshima, the first city to ever suffer a nuclear attack. Zelensky is expected to visit a memorial to the bombing's victims, and Japan can use that to say nuclear weapons must never be used again, especially not by Russia against Ukraine. Hmm. Scott, let me bring you in here. The big Ukraine policy news out of the summit is that President Biden is suddenly on board with supplying F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. How big of a shift is this for the U.S., Scott? It's pretty major. Remember in the early days of the war, Biden made it clear he was worried about triggering a broader war with Russia. So he was very careful about what kind of weapons the U.S. was supplying to Ukraine. Those weapons have gotten more and more and more advanced and deadly over time. They've gone from anti-tank and aircraft shoulder-fired rockets to complex long-distance missile systems. And now Biden says the U.S. is ready to help train Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16s and that the U.S. is beginning conversations with allies about how to transfer fighter jets to the country. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan talked to reporters about this today. He said a couple interesting things. He said the U.S.'s main goal is still to help Ukraine as much as possible while averting World War III, which is always a good goal, and that one part of the calculation when sharing these potent weapons with Ukraine is making it clear that Ukraine cannot use these weapons to attack inside of Russia. And the Ukrainians have consistently indicated that they are prepared to follow through on that. And in fact, we have seen them follow through on that with uh, the provision of Western equipment when we have given it to them. And the thinking here is that Russia would react much differently to an attack with NATO-provided weapons inside of Russia than an attack against Russian forces in Ukraine. Quite a balancing act there. Mm -hmm. Anthony, shifting away from Ukraine and President Zelensky, China is another elephant in the room whenever G7 leaders meet. What did the leaders agree on in terms of their approach to China? Yeah, well, they did try to craft a unified approach to dealing with China. One of the big talking points was de-risking but not decoupling their economies. And what they mean by de-risking is national security risks. They don't want to give China a technological or military advantage. So the G7 communique says G7 members have no hostile intent. They don't want to thwart China's development, but that's exactly what China believes they're doing. They believe they're using national security as a cover for protectionism, for giving U.S. companies an advantage, and they're trying to build international rules and institutions which intentionally shut China out. This G7 communique also mentions the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, and also about uh, concerns about forced labor in the western regions of Tibet and Xinjiang and civil liberties in Hong Kong. Now, as far as China is concerned, all of those are Chinese territories, and by commenting, the G7 members, China thinks, are just meddling in their internal affairs. And Scott, as I mentioned, President Biden is also keeping tabs on those critical debt ceiling negotiations here in Washington. What has the president said about whether he thinks they'll ultimately be able to get a deal? 
he says he's confident that they'll reach a deal. Biden is, of course, cutting this trip short to get back and finish talks. He was supposed to go on to Australia. In fact, he, he met with Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese here in Japan today, and, and he began the meeting by apologizing for canceling that trip. And again, I truly apologize to you for uh, having you to come here rather than me being in Australia right now. Uh, but we have a little thing going on at home i got to pay attention to. When it comes to that little thing going on, we, we did hear a lot of mixed messages from the White House today. They began with confident tones, saying there are big differences, but they'll work them out. Then the White House issued a statement blasting Republicans for how they're negotiating. And then Biden told reporters this is how talks go and, and expressed confidence. He at least seems calm about it, even though the U.S. is set to run out of money to pay debt as soon as 11 days from now. Yeah, that clock is ticking. That's White House correspondent Scott Detrow, along with NPR's Asia correspondent Anthony Kuhn, both reporting from Hiroshima. Thanks so much to both of you for your reporting. You're welcome, sure Sarah. Now to Northern California and the threat one community of color faces because of rising sea levels. KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero takes us to West Oakland in the San Francisco Bay Area. Those rising sea levels make residents there vulnerable to flooding and to toxins that have long polluted surrounding areas. And residents say protecting them from that threat, or what's known as climate justice, is a form of reparations. Thousands of people live in West Oakland, a bridge away from San Francisco, boxed in by freeways, a port, and numerous industries. Margaret Gordon shows me around the northern edge of the neighborhood. So where are we going to go? Okay, we're going to go over the overpass. We pass charcoal gray and white condominiums about a half mile from San Francisco Bay. As seas continue to rise, Gordon, who founded the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project, foresees a looming disaster. These will be the first victims of a sea level rise. And not only from surface flooding. Between these homes and the bay are hazardous sites, like an old army base contaminated with petroleum and other chemicals. That contamination can move around as water under the ground rises. Those toxic soils will be a hindrance to the community. They're going to be surprises and they're going to be real health risks. Christina Hill directs the Institute for Urban and Regional Development at UC Berkeley. Rising seas move inland on top of the land and underneath it. The seawater actually comes under the land, almost like it's sticking its toe under the fresh water. That seawater pushes the freshwater up, where it can mix with contamination. As the pollution loosens, it can release poisonous gases in and around sewer and water pipes. The gas can enter buildings, workplaces, schools, and homes through cracks in the concrete slab foundation. Across West Oakland, there are more than 130 active toxic sites. West Oakland grew up as an industrial powerhouse some 150 years ago when the Transcontinental Railroad ended its long journey here. Over time, shipbuilding, metal foundries, auto yards, and dry cleaners filled this corner of Oakland. Racist home lending policies like redlining relegated Black people to this neighborhood. It is a lesson in discrimination and disregard and diminishment of a population that is helping build a city. Dorothy Lazard grew up in West Oakland. She retired two years ago as the managing librarian of the Oakland History Center. Lazard said the policy of eminent domain decimated Black neighborhoods and business districts, allowing governments to seize land and destroy homes to build freeways and a commuter train line. 
claiming eminent domain is to me kind of commensurate to colonialism. You know, it's kind of like we can use this as our dumping ground because we've already devalued this space. Lazard says racist policies exposed residents to life-threatening environmental pollution without their consent. Those impulses are still there. Margaret Gordon sits on a park bench in front of her apartment as semi-trucks crawl the street and a commuter train zips by. She tells me climate justice must mean reparations. To me, the reparation movement is the next level of civil rights. For Gordon, reparations mean more than payment to the descendants of slaves. They mean actions that restore consent to the community, like cleaning up toxic sites, economic opportunities, and power in planning decisions about climate resilience. We will have long-standing sustainability. I would know that there's going to be housing for my, for my children, grandchildren. There's going to be a job for them. Climate change and reparations in terms of a response to the history of racial injustice have the same roots. Olufemi Taiwo is an associate professor at Georgetown University. He's the author of the book Reconsidering Reparations with a chapter on climate reparations. Even if you didn't buy the historical story about why reparations and climate crisis are linked, there is a straightforward practical story of if you want to actually change who faces what level of death, disease, and displacement, this is something that you should pay attention to. He says climate justice and reparations are the same project. For NPR News, I'm Ezra David Romero in West Oakland. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Russell's Garden Center, seven acres of plant varieties, unique bird feeders and garden decor, a shopping experience for beginning and advanced gardeners. Russell's Route 20 Wayland. Coming to City Space on Monday, June 5th, New York Times cooking writer Hedy McKinnon on her new cookbook, Tender Heart. It's a note to vegetables and family. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. WBUR supporters include Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, now through July 16th, amrep.org. And BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash ssw. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Debt ceiling talks between House Republicans and the White House aren't scheduled for today so far. This as President Biden and world leaders watch from the G7 summit in Japan. The Biden administration says the U.S. will likely run out of cash to pay its bills around June 1st. The head of a Russian mercenary force says his fighters have now completed the capture of the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. Ukraine denies the claim, saying heavy fighting in the city continues. It's among the bloodiest in the war in Ukraine so far. And the British author Martin Amos has died at his home in Florida of cancer. He was 73. He was the son of a writer, and his novels came to define British life in the late 20th century. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. It's that time of year. High school seniors across the country are filing into auditoriums and filling up gymnasiums and football bleachers, all to celebrate their accomplishments, receive their diplomas, and take in words of wisdom from their commencement speakers. I just want to extend my personal congratulations to our graduating class. This year, there's a common thread. Your last four years have been anything but normal. The class of 2023 started high school before the pandemic and spent the end of their freshman year and subsequent years navigating a new reality. Graduation speakers this year celebrated their resilience, like Principal Rebecca Morrissey of Topeka High School in Kansas. You have persevered, surviving masks, remote and hybrid learning. Or this one from salutatorian Victoria Loridan at Wellington High School in Palm Beach, Florida. At least we can one-up our parents in the stories we're telling our kids. Oh, you climb mountains and swim across a river to go to school? I had to show up to school in a hazmat suit and dodge coughs and sneezes just to take a math test in second period. Every time the classroom phone rang, we anxiously waited to find out who was next to get sent home due to contact tracing. In Brooklyn Woods' speech at Stewart's Creek High School in Smyrna, Tennessee, the pandemic was framed as a lesson in perseverance. But this class embraced the chaos. Proof that her classmates can overcome obstacles and are destined for success. I love you, Red Hawks. Thank you. Now, commencement speeches are sort of required to be uplifting, especially with everything this class of seniors has gone through. According to many studies, there has been considerable learning loss for K-12 students throughout the pandemic. And a recent study from researchers at Harvard and Stanford shows that the pandemic exacerbated existing inequalities. We wanted to know what the last four years really felt like for the class of COVID-19. So we talked to three students who lived it. They each had an idea of what they thought high school would be, like Jamori Reese of St. Louis, Missouri, whose vision was shaped by a lot of Disney Channel viewing. I was really into high school musical, so I was very excited with having the social experience. Arnav Darmagata of Russell, Kentucky, who was hoping for independence. I think I walked into high school really looking for like more freedom in just myself and what I chose to do, is, and especially with the classes I chose to take. And Gabby Velasquez of Orange County, California, who went to a public middle school and was transferring to a private school as a scholarship student. I was really just expecting to get out of my shell a little bit more. I used in middle school was really an introvert. And they each described the moment in March 2020 when those plans began to unravel. Press conferences from officials, emails from school administrators. Schools were shut down. Spring breaks were extended. At first, just for a couple of weeks, they said. And we really all thought we were going to go back after those two weeks. Instead, of course, schools went virtual. The pandemic would make a permanent mark on each of the students, beginning with those first days of remote learning. And that's where our conversation starts. 
how did you adjust as it became clear that this was not just an extended spring break? This was something more. For me, I would say it was difficult because I live in an apartment and so I share a room with my two other siblings. So it was really hard to for our Wi-Fi also to maintain all three of us in class without it disconnecting. So it's very hard to actually participate because most of the time you would get like your microphone would malfunction or your video would just cut off and all that. And my school noticed it before the end of the school year. They managed to get me a hotspot that I could use to connect my laptop personally. So no one else was on it. And were your, you said two siblings you share with or? Yeah. Were your siblings also trying to study in that same room? Well, we were placed in different parts of the house. My brother, as the oldest, took the desk. My sister took the dining room table, and then I was stuck in my parents' bedroom. So I was also on top of a bed, which is kind of like, you know, on a bed, you really do get comfy and don't really want to work. So it was really hard for me to actually find the motivation to actually not open another tab that wasn't for school and just actually pay attention to the teacher. This is Jamari. Um, for myself, honestly, it wasn't really me adjusting by choice. We were forced to um, learn self-discipline as we didn't have the motivation from adults in our lives to really keep going. It was very difficult because the learning experience wasn't the same. We weren't really required to learn the way we needed to in person because our teachers could have been websites or Google. Arnav, what was your experience like? Learning turned into very much like checking boxes off to reach the end of the year. I remember most of my classes were through software. They weren't actual live classes. And it was just a game of trying to get through all the content that was required. And so I would speed through videos and I would finish assignments as quickly as possible just to say that I've done them and be done with it. I think like the the joy of learning and the social aspect of it was lost. And do you feel like you've been able, since you've gone back to in-person classes, to regain that joy of learning that you described? I think it's, yeah, I think I have regained that joy of learning just being around people and being in community with each other, you kind of have this shared experience or this shared desire to gain knowledge and to learn. And you, we lost that when we transitioned to virtual learning. Jamori, what was it like for you when you transitioned back to um, a more typical classroom setting? Um, so initially, my first year of going back to in-person learning was my junior year, which was 11th grade. Um, but for me, it was pretty weird because I'd say I had like one or two days of being back in person and finding out who my teachers are. And then I get an email along with a couple other students who were told that we had to stay home for two weeks. And all of us were like, we coordinated with each other because some of us knew who the others were. And we we're like, we have to stay home. Why do we have to stay home? And so but they didn't even tell you exactly why at first? No, like they had a, at first they, what they do is they will say our names on an intercom. Jamori Reese and so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so come down to the main office. And they told us that they were like, due to you guys being exposed, you guys have to go home. And we were like, we just got back to school. And so for me, I was like 16 hours worth of school and now I'm back online. And How did that feel? It felt really isolating. I could tell they were trying their best to keep us safe, but I'm like one of two juniors that had to stay home for two weeks. And when we came back, everyone was happy to see us, but 
they were two weeks ahead of making those connections with everybody else than we were being stuck at home again alone. It was such a chaotic time. I mean, Gabby, how did things unfold at your school when it was time to go back? The only good thing, kind of, was that they offered hybrid models. So it's not like we were forced to go back in person, especially for those that were really cautious about COVID. But I really chose to go in person. Like my parents gave me the choice if I wanted to stay online or go. And I was like, I really am not learning. Like I have to go in person or else I don't know how sophomore year is going to go. So it was very good that I was able to go back in person. But at the same time, just since I wasn't able to develop a a lot more connections because of the pandemic, it really, my social life really lacked when we went back to school. Like I was really just did not talk at all. Sure, I like participated in class every now and then, but I like wasn't talking to any friends or all that. So it was really hard. You know, you each have mentioned feeling like you were missing out or falling behind or both, you know, in some way at school, at so, uh, socially, academically, whatever the case may be. Do you feel like you've caught up? This is Arnav. Um, I feel like once I returned back to school, I kind of had this reignited desire to catch up. And that's both academically and socially. So I remember um, seeking out more harder classes and trying to get the most of that learning experience. And socially, I started going to football games and school dances just because I understood the importance of that social connection more from being deprived of it. Gabby? I feel like it was a little bit difficult. Like, I didn't go. Like, even though we had chances to go to dances junior year and all that, I didn't choose to go to any of them until this year. So I've only gone to three. You know, like, when I first when I went to my first football game this year, it was really new. But at the same time, I could see how everyone else around me was kind of already used to going to football games and the ambience it had. So it was really new to get to just see that happen for me. It was, like oh, damn, I've been missing out on this like the past four years. Like, I don't know why I didn't do this sooner. I agree with both of you guys. Um, it, it was a different urgency to catch up. Academically, it was more of a struggle for me because I was not really required to learn to learn online. For me, I said the hardest thing was like my math class because I was on an accelerated path with math. And then I ended up taking a normal math in my senior year because... It was really difficult for me to stay on my accelerated path as I was not getting back into my learning quickly. Like I didn't learn as quick as I used to when it would come to math because there was a time period where I didn't have to learn. This, of course, was all happening because of COVID, coronavirus. And um, a couple of you have mentioned the fear of, you know, getting sick or, or transmitting something to somebody else. On top of all of the school-related stress, the virus itself was a concern for a lot of people. You know, there was a point at the height of the pandemic where there were thousands of people dying every day. How much of a worry was that for each of you? For me, this is going to sound a little bit ignorant, I guess, but I was told that COVID was happening in freshman year, but they weren't really making a focus on the virus itself. Like, it was all school. Like, okay, now we're going to be school learning. And it took me connecting with my family members again to see how much it really impacted the people that were nearby for me to see how intense it was. Um, I had some family members pass away from COVID. And so I think my panic happened a little bit later. It was a little bit delayed, I guess, because it took me having to see that it can happen to me and it can happen to people I'm close to. Yeah. Gabby? 
Well, I was kind of the same when we were still in school. Like until summer break, I was focused on school. Once we were like out of classes and all that, I was really scared to the point I did not like having the news on because that was really kind of all you heard about how many people were dying every day because of the virus. Even my mom noticed like I was getting just so anxious to the point I was having some anxiety attacks every now and then just because I'm just like, when is this going to happen to me? Like I wasn't thinking like if it was like, is it like, when is it going to happen? I'm sorry. It was so scary. It was scary. Arnav, how about you? I remember feeling frustrated a lot, especially towards um, the end. Once we had our vaccines available and once testing was available, I remember feeling frustrated because, you know, all this, all this sadness, all the suffering, we had endured it. And now we finally had a solution, but it didn't seem like people were taking it. it. There was a lot of apprehensiveness and it was just frustrating to know that there's a solution there, but people aren't willing to do it. You know, I know each of you are headed to college. As you think back on high school, your unique historic high school experience, is there anything that came out of this experience that you see as maybe positive or or just that taught you something that you'll take into the future? I think one thing that I valued about the pandemic and virtual learning was the idea that you had flexibility in what you could do and how how you wanted to manage your time. And I think that flexibility is really similar to how college classes are gonna run, where you're on your own and you manage your time outside of class by yourself. It it made me more responsible and it made me more prepared, I think, for college. Well, I also agree with what Arna said. Like it really did make us and it for sure made me more independent from my parents or more than I usually was already. So it was really Nice but hard just seeing my parents just realize that I didn't really need their help anymore. Like I could figure out everything, which is going to help in college because I won't have like people handing me resources. Like from now on, I'm going to have to be like looking for them. I agree with what both of you guys said. Um, You were forced to have independence. And I think because all of us were kind of forced to be thrown in water, it was kind of like a sink or swim. And all of us learned how to swim. You know, and also for me, I don't know if this is the same for you guys, but I became more one with myself. I was able to find out who I was because I had so much time with who I was. And so like, I'm walking in confident in my ability to be able to soar because I was able to soar through this. We're like, okay, give it to us. We know how to handle ourselves because we had to handle ourselves before. I've been talking with Jamori Reese, Arnav Darmagada, and Gabby Velasquez. Thanks so much to all three of you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. This is NPR News. Imagine your home on its messiest day. It's chaos as far as the eye can see. Legos strewn on the floor, dirty socks wedged between couch cushions, maybe some cups crusted over with milk. It's easy to see that and get overwhelmed or fall into a shame spiral. But therapist Casey Davis has a message for you. The only thing that actually matters is whether my house is functioning and whether I'm able to live the kind of life I want to inside of it. Life Kit's Marielle Segura talked to Davis about her book, How to Keep House While Drowning. And the pair have this action plan for getting your space under control quickly. It's called the five things tidying method, because Davis says there are really only five things in any room. There's trash, dishes, laundry, things that have a place and things that don't have a place. 
You start at the top of that list and go category by category, ignoring everything else in the room for the moment. So first, trash. Get a trash bag or a trash can and move around the room picking up the garbage. Do not take the trash out yet. Because one of the things that gets us stuck is that we get distracted. So if you, the more times you leave that room, the more likely you are to get distracted on some different project. Step two, dishes. Gather them up. You could use a laundry basket without holes in it or get a small rolling hamper. Depends on what works for you. What kind of makes your brain feel like it's on a greased track? The reality is there are going to be ways of doing things that make you feel like you are grinding gears with no oil, where every step of the process kind of feels miserable and, and you have to force it. So don't do things that way. You're going to put the dishes in the sink, or if the sink is in a different room, maybe you put them in a corner for now. Step three is laundry. Now, there are often in a given room various types of laundry. There's clean, but not in the drawer. There's dirty, maybe a little stinky, not going to wear it again. And then there's the in-between. I don't know. I mean, I could wear it again, but it's not exactly clean enough to go back in the drawer. So here's what I do. Um, I don't have all those categories. And I'm not saying that I don't, but like I don't. I just, if it's on the floor, it's going into the hamper and it's getting washed. And that really simplifies things for me. Whatever you decide, gather the laundry, put it in a basket or a bag, and bring it to the laundry machine or set it by the door of your home. Then move to step four, things that have a place. This one's pretty straightforward. Put the things away. Finally, step five, things that don't have a place. This is always sort of my check-in moment where I kind of check in with myself and I go, okay, how are we feeling? What else is on the agenda today? How motivated are we? What's our body feeling like? What's our concentration level? Because sometimes I just put it aside in a basket and have to do other things, go, you know, throw the trash away. But if she's feeling ready to tackle this, it's time to make some decisions. Is there anything she can purge or donate? And then I go, okay, is there anything in here that kind of like has cousins or close friends? Meaning, maybe you don't have a designated spot for that box cutter, but you do have a drawer where you keep the scissors. That could work. Now that you've made it through the five things, take out the trash and decide whether you have the energy to do the dishes or the laundry right now. Davis says in these moments, you want to think in terms of kindness to yourself. Maybe right now, the kindness is washing one bowl and one cup so I can use them in the morning. And sometimes I say, I'm not going to even touch these dishes because I deserve rest. And I do that out of kindness too. I'm going to go let myself lay down on the couch. She says when you start to treat yourself with kindness, things can change. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. And we have more tips at npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News. I'm Susan Levy. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 6, it's been a minute. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Join WBUR on Thursday, June 8th at the Somerville Theater for the Moth Main Stage, featuring live music and true stories told live by five very divergent raconteurs. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. 63 degrees raining in Boston at 539. Rain tonight, sun tomorrow. 
were funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices, stanhopeframers.com, and Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass., more at soaringhawkcenter.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Japan for diplomatic talks at the G7, tightening sanctions against Russia and managing China, along with concerns about the U.S. debt ceiling, are main topics. In Israel, thousands again protested against the government's plans to overhaul the judiciary, even though Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he'd delay them. Protesters want those plans scrapped altogether. Netanyahu is also on trial for corruption. And WNBA Phoenix Mercury star Brittany Griner returned to the court last night in her first regular season game since being jailed in Russia for 10 months. She scored 18 points in her team's win against Los Angeles. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com slash careers. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. Hillsong Church set out to make church cool. That you can rest a little bit easier tonight knowing that God is protecting you from things you have not seen yet. He is protecting you from forces that you cannot fight on your own. This is our God. The International Evangelical Megachurch set up their first U.S. operation in New York in 2010, led by soon-to-be celebrity pastor Carl Lentz, who you just heard. After celebrities like Justin Bieber joined the congregation, its popularity exploded. Then, in late 2020, the church publicly fired Lentz and his wife over what they cited as, quote, moral failings. The ousting of that lead pastor was just the tip of the iceberg for years of accusations of misconduct by leaders of the church. FX just dropped the first two episodes in a new four-part documentary series titled The Secrets of Hillsong. It examines the church's fall from grace over the last decade. Here to talk about this new documentary series are director Stacey Lee and Alex French, one of the Vanity Fair journalists who broke the story that laid the foundation for this documentary. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Alex, I'll begin with you. How did you and your Vanity Fair colleague, Dan Adler, first come across the story of Hillsong, and what was it that interested you? I was first put on the case by my editor, Matt Lynch. The sort of initial story was going to be a profile of Carl and an examination of how he was going to turn the page and sort of go on with his life in the wake of the affair. What happened, though, was Carl disappeared And my partner, Dan Adler, and I were sort of left wondering what to do next. And as we sort of started reporting around the edges, it became really clear to us that 
you know, while a lot of Carl's behavior was incredibly problematic, he wasn't the problem. Rather, he was a, a symptom of a larger sort of toxic culture that was rooted in the the main Hillsong Church in Sydney and disseminated throughout the world. And Stacy, what about you? Really, the driving force for me is that we hear this kind of narrative over and over again, you know, these whether it's church or whether it's Washington or Hollywood, you know, there's this societal kind of trend of, you know, putting these people up on pedestals and really putting so much trust and faith and power in their hands. For me, you know, I, I'm, I wasn't a religious person kind of going into this and I didn't want this to be a takedown of religion by any sense. I really wanted this to be a deeper exploration of not just how this happens, but why it happens. But this story happens at a church. Mm -hmm. Hillsong is a megachurch. It's based in Australia. And even for a megachurch, it's huge. I mean, churches all over the world. Just describe Hillsong a little bit more for me, if you would, Alex. Sure. So at its height, Hillsong had branches or I guess they're almost like franchises in 31 countries. Weekly, they had about 150,000 congregants. And Hillsong's thing is it's like it's an experience. It's like a rock concert, right? Like, you know, Hillsong music is famous worldwide. It's a... Uh, it sounds a lot like Coldplay or, you know, like U2, sort of like big anthem chills-inducing, heart-swaying melodies. Mm -hmm. And they put out these incredibly charismatic pastors. The other thing that I think Hillsong did really well was it disguised traditional Pentecostal conservative values underneath all of that cool window dressing. And what was the goal? of that sort of disguise, as you describe it? I mean, Brian Houston Hillsong, it is a prosperity gospel church. So the goal, sort of the end, is profit. Yeah. Um, these leaders you've mentioned, Brian Houston and uh, Carl Lenz and others, they were apparently getting very rich. What do we know, Stacy, about how Hillsong made money from churchgoers and where that money was going? Sure. I mean... This was one of the, the big challenges with the documentary because, you know, even though Hillsong are incredibly good at telling us the numbers of how many people are attending and how many people are listening to our records, like statistics were very, very, very big. The numbers about money were incredibly vague. And for years and years, you know, Alex can speak to this as well, but incredibly hard for journalists to understand or see because there are no checks and balances, not in Australia and certainly not in America, that tell us where this money might be going and ensures that the money is going to the places it's saying it's going to. At the same time, most of the labor that made Hillsong function was coming from volunteers. There's an interview in the first episode with a former member of the congregation who talks about how volunteers in New York City's church were coming to her asking for help with rent or evictions. Um, many of them didn't have food to eat. Here's what she said. They were coming to me and asking, can I get them help? Is there any way that they can, find, they can get help? The head of pastoral care said to me, it's illegal for the church to give people lump sums of money. I said, no, it's not. The church helps its people and people outside of the church. Come on. 
Alex, what has Hillsong said in response to these kinds of allegations? You know, Hillsong with us has remained pretty quiet. I will say you are correct about Hillsong's use of labor. Like it is the volunteer aspects. Every church depends in part on volunteers to operate. But what Hillsong has done is basically provided small skeleton staffs to franchises all over the world and filled in the blanks, you know, with volunteers. Nobody who really works on a Hillsong service is being paid, really, except for the pastor. The other aspect of this is that this was in New York City. You know, the wealth discrepancy is incredibly huge. And these weren't just hours where they were just serving around one service. Like Hillsong went from five in the morning till midnight on a Sunday. Every single night of the week, there was programming of events and things you needed to be at. So really what happens over time is that it begins to surpass their own careers, their own opportunities to make money where they're foregoing those things in order to serve the church. And obviously the expectation and what we're hearing in the documentary and the piece you just played is then on the other hand of that, when some of these congregants were going through their own issues and needed the help and support and they've given so much to the church, the church in some instances wasn't ready to help them in return. And I feel like that is one of the themes that we heard over and over again. It wasn't just volunteering for just a couple of hours. It was really giving over your life. And in some ways that return began to felt exploitative. You know, Stacey, on kind of a related note, an important theme in this documentary is the idea of persecution, that mm -hmm. Hillsong leaders, when criticized, would characterize what was happening as persecution, and they would echo themes from the Bible. Mm -hmm. How effective were leaders like Brian Houston at making that argument to the people in their church, their followers? I mean, I think in incredibly effective. The allegations about the alleged cover-up his father's alleged sexual abuse have been around for over a decade. And when he's standing in, you know, in the Royal Commission talking about you know, his own role within all of this is also when Hillsong's numbers are reaching their highest ever around the world globally. And I think this is what we were trying to juxtapose within the documentary is just these two worlds that were coexisting where the underbelly of the past was starting to catch up with this incredibly glittery, shiny, sparkly future. And I think the same tools that were used to kind of bolster and grow Hillsong, Instagram, social media, all these things, ultimately became the same tools that people who had been suppressed or silenced or victimized and blamed across the years were finally able to kind of speak out. Stacey Lee and Alex French, their documentary is The Secrets of Hillsong on FX. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having us. There are a number of reasons Hollywood writers are on strike against major studios. Mainly, they want higher wages and more residuals from the streaming platforms. But another issue writers are concerned about, the use of artificial intelligence in writing films and TV shows. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports on what worries screenwriters about a possible future with AI in the writer's room and on the perhaps surprising ways some writers are embracing the technology. Movie and TV writers have envisioned AI as evil, as in The Terminator. I'll be back. Or traitorous, as in the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Or empathetic, like in the film Her. Like, are these feelings even real? Or are they just programming? 
In real life, some Hollywood writers on strike say they're worried studio executives could eventually replace them with AI. That's one concern for comedy writer Miranda Berman, who picketed outside Paramount Pictures this week. This is only the beginning. If they take writers' jobs, they'll take everybody else's jobs, too. And also in movies, you know, like, the, the robots kill everyone in the end. On the picket line outside Universal Studios, TV writer Lynette Tichelle said she's worried studios will hire fewer writers to simply doctor up whatever the machines come up with. We're coming back fighting so that Alexa's and, and whatnot aren't writing our stories. We're not here to rewrite a machine. <laughs> We're not against the use, you know, if, if we can find a way to be reasonable, but they cannot be the genesis of any creation. We create these worlds. Tichelle says she recently read a script written by ChatGPT. And it was terrifying. There was the quality there? No, absolutely not. The structure was there, so they understand the structure of what to do, but it had no depth. It had no spirit. It didn't have nuance. It wouldn't understand how to handle race, certain jokes, things like that. The Writers Guild of America, which called for the strike, says writers want more regulation of AI. For example, bans on studios using it to write or rewrite things like stories, treatments, and screenplays, or even write the source material that human writers would adapt for the screen. They also don't want the writer's work to be used to train AI. Meanwhile, the studios, represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, say that the use of AI raises hard, important, creative, and legal questions for everyone, and that it requires more discussion. They also point out that the current agreement already defines writers as people, so AI-generated material wouldn't be eligible for writing credits. During a recent earnings call, Disney CEO Bob Iger told investors that AI development presents opportunities and benefits to the company. We're already starting to use AI to create some efficiencies and ultimately to better serve consumers. But it's also clear that AI is going to be highly disruptive and it could be extremely difficult to manage, particularly from an IP management perspective. AI experts and writers say the new technology isn't yet able to write a good script. But AI is starting to crop up in Hollywood productions, and some are embracing it as a tool. Writers from the show Mrs. Davis used algorithms to generate episode titles. And as part of the promotion for their show, co-creators Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof ran the Mrs. Davis premise through what's called an AI visualizer program. Computer-generated images popped up when they typed prompts into a keyboard. And the prompt would go a little something like this. Mrs. Davis is a series about a nun, Sister Simone. She's a great nun, but she's also cool. She's an awesome renegade nun who rides a motorcycle. With a helmet. Always, always wear a helmet. Always, And yes. the nun has to find the holy grail in order to destroy this AI. Other Hollywood writers say they're using AI in the form of language learning models to come up with ideas or spin out potential plot lines or develop characters. I'm using it as a brainstorming tool and as a research aid. TV writer Matt Nix says he tested several AI programs to give him episode ideas for his show True Lies. He says he recently pitched a new show and needed to research how a particular governmental agency worked. Which you could do through a search engine, but it's a lot easier to do it with AI because immediately after asking, okay, so what is the internal structure of this organization, you can then start building on that and saying, okay, so... Let's say there's a character named Joe who has this position, and let's say there's a character named Tina who has this position. How frequently would Joe and Tina be interacting? 
Nick says when it comes to brainstorming ideas, if you make a single request, an AI program is likely to spit out the most cliched version of what it's seen before. But if you play with it and you say, no, no, I don't want just one idea for this. I want five ideas for this. Then it has to dig a little bit deeper and give you the less likely ideas. Nix has been playing around with an AI app called Pickaxe. With it, writers can generate written scenes by describing their plots and characters in a text box. Pickaxe was built by Mike Joya and Ian Eck, who run a film and media production company. Joya says screenwriters have told them Pickaxe is a helpful tool. To do like 80% of the work for them, like get around writer's block, generate like a B-minus version of a scene or a conversation that they can then spruce up. It's a far way from being able to write screenplays. So I don't think many writers have to worry about their jobs. Eck agrees. It's the creatives that are actually getting more empowered because you still need a creative mind. You need taste. You need to know what makes interesting drama and interesting characters, what makes a story good and what makes it human. That sensibility is not coming from the studio heads. I tested out Pickaxe to see what it would come up with for the opening of a movie about an NPR reporter doing a story about how Hollywood writers are using AI. Interior. Script AI office day. A young writer turns around and smiles. We input data about what makes a successful movie, plot structure, genre conventions, character traits, and our algorithm generates a fully formed screenplay. Suddenly alarms blare. Red lights flash. The algorithm. It's gone rogue. Panic ensues as Mandalit looks around in horror. The camera pans to show other workers screaming and running. It's generating plot lines that make no sense, characters that contradict themselves. We have to stop it before it's too late. The technology is still developing, but so far even the AI-generated script envisions the bots running amok, just like all those sci-fi movies we've seen before. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News.